Welcome to the Stull Community of Faith podcast. May you be blessed as you listen to our Sunday scripture and message by Pastor Kyle Scheidemann. Scripture comes from Genesis 32, 22 through 32. Jacob wrestles with God. That night, Jacob got up and took two wives, his two female servants and 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The man rose from above as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Then the second scripture comes from Matthew 14, 13 through 21. Jesus feeds the 5,000. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew his boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loads and the, the loaves and the two fish, and looking up to the heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. <clears throat> they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you so much for reading that this morning. And now may the words of my mouth, but the meditations that are received from all of our hearts be acceptable to you. O Lord, our Creator and our Savior. So, as I look out, I'm sure we, we must have some in here somewhere. How many, how many of you are math wizards? If we have, go ahead and show your hands. Math, math wizards, we've got some math wizards. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, I've always, uh, always been amazed at those phenomenal people. Uh, and my dad was one of them, actually. Uh, he, can, he could uh, compute sums and fractions in their heads. And he would just do it in a matter of moments. My dad, my dad was a cattle buyer, and they, they would buy, you know, go out in the country and buy cattle, and he could, he could do addition and subtraction and everything and, and never, never break out a pencil. He just was that way. So do we have any, anybody that are accountants? Yeah. Tax accountants? Oh, man. You know, to be an accountant, you have to have a certain personality. I get an amen on that? Yeah. <laughs> what about statisticians? We have any of those in here? Huh? Okay. Maybe you or maybe somebody here that we don't know about secretly programs rockets. I don't, you know. You could. I don't know. This is this. Well, math wizards. You know, back when I, when I was in school, um, I can remember the first calculator I ever saw. Uh, John Harold Yoakum was his name, and he's one of those 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 wizards, you know, that always had electronics. And and one of the, and I have slide rule for those of you that remember those or have heard about them. Um, and I could at that time the, the calculator was so slow. This would have been back in the 60s. It was so slow that I could I could figure it on my slide rule faster than the calculator would figure it out. And we kind of call those folks that got into the digital uh, technology, we, and they were enthusiasts, and I think they still call them, we call them geeks, right? Yeah, we have the Best Buy has the geek squad that goes around and, and works on your stuff. Now I'm telling you, if you didn't already know it, that the geeks, they rule the world, right? And, and let's, let, let's hear it for the geeks of the world. I, I think we should say, we, we appreciate you. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, they've given us everything that we need. They've given us computers. They've given us navigational systems. They've given us iPhones, uh, AI, or, or artificial intelligence. Uh, we have, thanks to these geeks, we have online banking. Uh, we have thousands of, of intricate systems that we barely even think about today because well, we just, we all take them for granted. And so math wizards, yes, you know, we love these people. They're great. But listen, even for the, the best math wizard, there can come a time in their professional lives or even in their graduate studies when they actually encounter a problem that they just have a difficulty in solving. Or maybe there's a, a college course that just, that just feels ridiculously tough. Or maybe, maybe they've, they've come up against a, a, a make or break moment in their career in which they need to get the, the right algorithms uh, to make something function. And then comes the reckoning. Talk about pressure. And so they will spend hours, maybe days, even years, struggling to come up with the terms to reckon with the problem that they have at hand. Will they persevere or will they give up? That is the prime question. Years ago, the word to reckon was used frequently in math, as some of you know. 
It meant most often to, to take a bill, take out a bill and, and to figure it out and to come up with a sum. But reckon has other meanings as well as you can see how they might relate to reckoning out a math problem. And so the word reckon itself, it comes back from the middle, the middle English era, around 1200. And back then it meant to count up as in math. But it also meant to relay or to recount as in to narrate a story. It could be a calculation of a, of a vexing sum or it could be the process of, of, of telling an important story. And earlier than this, in what we call the uh, Indramatic period before English itself was born as a language, the root reg meant not only to count or to pay, but to make it right, to make it straight. You know, as, as in make your path straight. Does that sound familiar to you? And so that's in fact what we come up with the idea that a reckoning, it also means a kind of judgment. At least that's the way we think about it when we recount biblical stories. Because we remember about the day of reckoning in which all the souls are going to be accounted for. They're going to be judged. And the world is going to be made straight. Or at least it's going to be straightened out, if you will. I mean, after all, that's what Jesus does when he returns, right? He straightens out our mess. And how? Well, Jesus gives us little hints about the important times of the reckoning. And we've heard about a few of those last week. Remember, we, we talked about the stories of the harvest, and we talked about the nets full of fish, the weeds, the tares, and others. And so today in our scripture, we have more examples of moments of reckoning. And in this sense of reckoning, we get a full sense of the direction and the definition to struggle, to count, to make right, to judge, to narrate, to decide and to come at last to terms. And so we, we listen to two very dynamic scriptures today. And the first has to do with Jacob's wrestling match with himself and with God before he feels like he is ready to reconcile with his brother Esau. You remember the, the second has to do then with the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women. And so we're really probably guessing there were somewhere around 7,000 people in all in a deserted place with, with his confused and vexed disciples looking on. And both are forms of reckoning. And often we read passages of scriptures as being isolated instances or events and we forget that these recounted stories are a piece of a much larger narration of someone's life and struggles. Here we have Jacob. He has a huge learning curve in his life. A huge bout of emotional and spiritual growth before this moment that he endures up on the hillside. So remember the story of, of Jacob and, and Esau in, in which Jacob cheats Esau out of his firstborn right to be the covenant carrier of the family. And although this may have been his mom's idea, because there was a lot of, of blended family stuff in that story, 
Jacob struggles immediately both with carrying out the deceitful act and, and carrying it in his conscience. And so he runs off and he goes to see his uncle um, Laban and he bears Laban's deceit and as he does the old switcheroo on him as Jacob works for Rachel and the first leaves Leah his wife and finally he marries both he carries on the stage and and there's a robbery between these two wives as well but that's another story as Jacob decides to go back to his own country he is filled with self-loathing he's filled with worry he's filled with stress he's filled with with guilt over his his former deceit and he doesn't know how he's going to face his brother and he has no idea he says well maybe my brother's going to retaliate me he might even kill me so before he crosses the Rubicon or actually the book uh, river he crosses he needs to come into terms with himself and also with God you see after all when you deceive others and you deceive yourself and God all at the same time and we all know that's right so Jacob's struggling and he struggles really hard how can he carry the covenant line when he's a sinner he's a thief he's a coward he's a deceiver and he's feeling very insecure he's feeling very guilty and he's feeling afraid he's kind of he's feeling like a jerk like a failure and most of all he, he needs to trust in the goodness of God and God's ability to forgive him more than he's able to forgive himself and he needs to trust in God's wisdom and blessing him so Jacob the deceiver as covenant carrier for God's blessed people and so as Jacob struggles God breaks him and then he blesses him and in that time of reckoning God breaks his self-pity his self-doubt, his wretchedness, his insecurity. And God blesses him and restores him, not only to God, but to himself. And after that, Jacob is able to make his transition. He crosses that river. And miraculously, he meets Esau on the, on the other side of the river. They embrace. The past is put to rest. And that's what you call a mighty story about reckoning but then in Jesus' story about feeding all those people on the hillside as well as the interchange with his own disciples we see another kind of reckoning but it's a very similar one this is a time of reckoning for Jesus' disciples although the story is about the miraculous feeding of the people who have been listening to Jesus teach for a very long time in a very remote area the true story going on here is about the faith or the doubt of Jesus' disciples so let's listen again to the moment for just a second listen again listen to the story so Jesus was was trying to get some time alone right and the guy is tired he's been preaching and 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 he's just he's wore out he needs to have a place he can go and and just kind of just chill out but people kept following him and he ended up having compassion on them so he spent a long time with them he was teaching them he was healing the sick and then evening came and the disciples came to Jesus 
And they said, you know, this is a, a deserted place, a good place for you to get some, some, some time away. The hour is late. So they said, Jesus, why don't you just go ahead and send the crowds away, and that way they can go into the villages and, you know, they can buy food for themselves and we can get a break. But then Jesus says to them, no, 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 they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Well, I'm sure they all looked at each other and said, what in the world is he talking about? All we, all we have here is just, we just have five loaves and two fish, barely enough to feed ourselves, let alone all these people. But Jesus said, no, no, he said, you, you, bring, that, you bring that food to me. And then, and I don't know, he must have had an incredible voice. I don't know how you tell 5,000 or 7,000 people to sit down. But these people all sat down there on the grass. And he took the loaves, he took the fish, he looked up to heaven, and he blessed them. And then he broke the loaves, he gave them to his disciples, and the disciples then passed all of that out to somewhere around 7,000 people. All ate, all of them were filled, and they even had leftovers, and they took up over the broken pieces, and they still had 12 baskets full. And I know that you have heard this story countless times, but if we look closely, who are the primary characters in this story? Not the 7,000 people. They are essentially just the props in this reaccounting of God's miracle. They are the recipients. But the primary characters, the disciples. While the crowd certainly benefited from the food that Jesus gave them to eat out of his compassion for them, the true reckoning happens as Jesus' disciples experience what it means to be a true follower and, and a true believer in Jesus. And they realized what is expected of them as disciples and people of, of deep faith and what it means to trust and to call upon God to intervene in the course of people's lives in order that they might believe and they might commit themselves to God. And so these disciples are called into a time of reckoning, a struggle for sure for them, in which Jesus' disciples must come face to face with the power of God and admit to themselves exactly who Jesus really is. And this is, after all, Jesus' greatest challenge in all of his ministry during all of the three years that he had on earth. It's hard to believe. We get that, right? It's hard for anyone to believe Jesus, Messiah and, and Lord, Son of God, God himself with the ability to heal and to do miracles and to rectify and to save the world through this sacrificial act. This man is a teacher. This is who he really is. And the disciples primarily reckoning is with their own lack of belief, with their own roles of disciples and what it means to be disciple of this unusual man who calls himself God. The purpose of every teaching moment that Jesus spends in his lifetime is to create disciples of the people that he meets and to heal them 
and to point them toward the blessings and the power and the miracles of God. And often the people who come to listen to Jesus have more faith than Jesus' disciples themselves. They are the ones that we see doubting the most. And there are moments of reckoning, whether here on the hillside or during Jesus' trial, or in, in his interactions with foreigners and others, or in his post-resurrection appearances, or even on the mountain at his commissioning. They are examples to us of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus, what it means to have life-reckoning faith. You know, having faith does not come without a struggle. To struggle with our doubt must be part of the deepening process of faith. You see, discipleship is a much harder struggle to reckon with than any old math problem. I mean, after all, in math, you have a problem, you can make a determination, you can declare a solution or result, but in life, when you face a dilemma or you face a crisis of faith, that reckoning, that the struggles that you feel, the disbelief, the urge to doubt, the times when reason kicks in and miracles just seem fanciful and silly, that moment of decision when you need to trust Jesus, who he is and what he's capable of in your life is your true time of reckoning. You know, God often comes into our lives in our greatest times of desperation and dilemma. Most often we find ourselves in our most deserted places and those are the times in which we struggle the most. But you know what? These struggles are important. They are the vital part of the process of coming into a deep faith. And so the question is, will you allow God to prevail? You know, all of us, we need to limp in our step. And we need to have a little humility in our lives in order for us to trust God in times when we, we most fear and we most doubt and we misstep. And when we do, we will find ourselves truly fed, truly nourished, truly at rest, truly at peace. He is our Lord and Savior. We struggle, and in that process, we come to a reckoning in which we submit ourselves to God. So, what will it be today, you people of God? Will you follow Jesus, or will you go your own way? This is a prime question. And so, as we partake of communion this morning, may you remember your baptism. May you feel the Holy Spirit touching down upon you. May you feel your body being nourished by the body and the blood of Jesus. But you may serve more completely. You may feed more heartily. And you may love more deeply now and always. Amen.